may be seated. Well, as I've already said, we're continuing to talk about some of these good phrases that are in our mission and vision statement. And if you want to see what that is in full, it's on the front of the bulletin under the picture. Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. If you want to look that up uh, on your phone or if you want to follow along with me in your Bible. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he had canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May the Lord bless the reading of this living word, and may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The old adage goes, you are what you eat. But maybe, just maybe, you are who you eat with. You know, you can tell a lot about somebody by how they answer that old dinner party question. You know the one. If you could share a meal with any person, living or dead, famous or familiar, who would it be? I know, I know. It's way too hard just to pick one. So I'll give you three. So start thinking about your answers. 
Who would you invite? A parent or a grandparent whom you miss dearly? Or Anthony Bourdain? Abraham Lincoln or your sorority sister? Your Sunday school teacher or Taylor Swift? Coco Goff or your pickleball partner? Bob, we all know at least one Bob or Bluey the dog. Yes, you can pick cartoon dogs in this game. It's all fair. But maybe what's more interesting than who you pick is why. Did anybody pick Jesus? We don't know why, but Simon the Pharisee did. Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to dinner. Because we know the end of the story, we're quick to jump to conclusions about why. We think that Simon may have invited Jesus because he's like those other Pharisees that wanted to trap or trick or somehow humiliate this young rabbi. But at the beginning of Luke, Luke's story, there's no context that tells us this. Jesus was probably most like the Pharisees. He probably enjoyed spending his time with them the most, so that's probably why he was always kind of getting into arguments and discussions with them. So let's assume that this Pharisee has a genuine desire to be in Jesus' company and learn from him. And let's also assume the same about those people that we think of as modern Pharisees. Now, from stage left, a woman Luke calls a sinner enters the scene. In Jesus' time, the homes of wealthy people like Simon would have been built around a courtyard with a garden and a fountain. And when the weather was warm, dinner would be served al fresco with guests reclining on low couches with their feet up away from the table. And when the local rabbi or teacher, word would spread and all kinds of people would show up and stand around the table just to eavesdrop on the dinner conversation. Every head would have turned amid gasp and sharp whispers when this woman poured perfume on Jesus' feet and let down her hair. Women in that time kept their hair up except for on their wedding night when they let it down in front of their husbands. And William Barclay writes, this was a grave act of immodesty. They must have all turned away in embarrassment when she started crying all over Jesus' feet and wiping them with her hair. I mean, this woman totally forgets herself and forsakes the other dinner guest in an unthinkably extravagant act of gratitude and love toward Jesus. Jesus thinks it's beautiful, but for now, we only overhear Simon's stinking thinking. If this man were a prophet, he would know, have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she's a sinner. A very strict interpretation of Leviticus 5, 1-5 would have led him to believe that by Jesus allowing this woman to touch him, that Jesus would also become unclean and a sinner like her. I mean, to paraphrase Fred Craddock, it is possible to get an A-plus in Bible and to flunk following Jesus. 
But Jesus has just as much compassion for Simon as he does this woman. So he teaches him a lesson about practicing grace. He tells a story about two debtors, one who owes 50 days of wages and one who owes 500 days of wages, far over a year's salary. Jesus asked him what would happen if the holder of both debts forgave them. I mean, who would be more grateful? Who would love more? Simon immediately gives the right answer. Of course, it's the one who owed more money. Simon gave the right answer, but he couldn't connect it to what had just happened at his own dinner table. Jesus asks him, Do you see this woman? Simon saw her, but he didn't see her. You all know the difference. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. The first act of hospitality by Simon should have been to bring cool water for Jesus' dusty, aching feet. But Simon failed to do that. But she bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. The second act of hospitality would be the host clasping the guest by the shoulder and giving a kiss of greeting. Not doing that would be like not even acknowledging that a guest had come into your home. But from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. The third act of hospitality that Simon neglected was to dab a little bit of rose oil on Jesus' head. Another comfort for the guest, weary and perhaps stinking from the long journey. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Simon the Pharisee had failed to offer the basic hospitality expected by a host. And this unnamed woman, this so-called sinner, had given her very self to make Jesus feel at home. It is a story of vast contrast that presents us with a choice. Will we separate ourselves from those whom we regard as sinners, or will we move closer to them? If we're not careful, we can be a lot like Simon the Pharisee, whose pursuit of righteousness leads him to distance himself from this woman, cringing at her presence and thinking and speaking as if she is unworthy of being in God's presence and much less worthy of being at his table. I mean, do you know just the irony here? All of this distancing of this woman in the name of God also distances Simon from Jesus? Or we can be like Jesus, whose pursuit of righteousness leads him to celebrate this woman's audacity to come close to him and even to touch him. We can try to be like Jesus, who truly sees this woman. 
not just as a victim of sinful circumstances or as a villain making sinful choices, but as a daughter of God whose original goodness, whose inherent dignity and worth could be obscured but never, ever lost. We can try to be like Jesus who receives not just this woman's gift, but receives her as a gift. At West Main, we say we're a family practicing the grace of Jesus. And over these almost 82 years, we have been a church who has tried and failed and tried and failed and tried again to be like Jesus, who moves close to people. Yes, we've, we've had our Simon moments, and we still continue to have our Simon moments, but you know what gives me hope? is that time and time again, Jesus has changed our minds and our hearts and our practices and has opened our embrace wider. You know, there was a time when Bob Jones couldn't join this church because he drove a beer truck. And there was a time when Ann Byer couldn't be a deacon because she was divorced. There was a time when there were a lot of people whom we excluded and looked past. But Jesus taught us lessons about what it meant to practice grace. I mean, can you imagine a West Main deprived of the lavish gifts of Bob or Ann? Over the years, we've become a family who has come close to people who have been shamed by pastors and rejected by congregations. We have become a church who has helped, has held people close who have made huge mistakes and have destroyed marriages and broken homes. And somehow, some of these exes have been able to keep going to church with each other. We've been, become a family where people of other dom- denominations have been embraced without being rebaptized by immersion, and a family where interfaith marriages have been supported and both spouses have been included whether or not they believed the things that we profess. Now, if you're of a certain generation or background, those things might not seem like a big deal, but for many of our Baptist forebears and peers, they would call those people sinners and us sinful for including them. We have become a family who has tried to stay close to each other in spite of significant political and theological differences. Now, I'm not saying it's a sin to think or vote a certain way, but we sure do treat each other as if it is. We sure do treat each other with the same kind of disdain as the Pharisees treat this woman. I mean, think about it. They aren't just wrong. They are unclean. We don't even want to share the table with them. Instead, we have tried to practice the grace of Jesus. We have tried to pull each other close as culture wars and our own differing Christian convictions have threatened to tear us apart. We haven't always succeeded in this. We've lost beloved family members over our inability to accept and live with our differences. Jesus is still teaching us lessons about grace, and we are trying and failing and trying to practice them. But in this trying and failing, Jesus has empowered us to see people, 
not just as victims of sinful circumstances or villains who made sinful choices, but sons and daughters of God, whose original goodness, whose inherent dignity and worth can be obscured, but never lost. I mean, I say all this not just to toot our own horns or to say we have arrived, but to remind you of the family of grace we have become. In the family of grace, we are always, always, always becoming. But to do that, I think we need to learn from one more contrast in the story. The contrast between Simon and this woman. Simon is focused on sin, specifically other people's sin. He can't get past the unpayable debt he believes this woman and those like her owe to God. The debt he thinks should separate him from her from debt-free people like him. I mean, we don't know whether he's actually delusional enough to think he's sinless or if he just thinks that her sins are, you know, worse than his. But Simon is focused on the wrong thing. He's focused on the debt. He's answered Jesus' question correctly, but somehow he's forgotten the end of the story, that the debt has been forgiven. He's like that older brother in the prodigal son story who can't enjoy the party that the father is throwing for him. He can only focus on the fact that she does not deserve to be there. It makes me wonder, maybe, just maybe, Simon can actually see his own sin all too well, but can't accept that God has actually forgiven him. Maybe he can't forgive himself. You know, we often project our own self-loathing onto others. But look at this woman instead. This woman has no delusion. She's a sinner. She hears it all the time. She's constantly confronted by her choices and her circumstances. And she's accepted it. She has no delusions about the grace of God either. She somehow accepted grace as the humiliating but unthinkably lavish gift that it is. And she can't help but give it back in an embarrassing way. In verse 47, Jesus says about her, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Hence, it's not a word we use a lot anymore. Maybe I should say it this way. For this reason... She has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. It's not that I think Jesus is saying that God forgives some more than others. But that some of us can just see how much we have been forgiven. And we can see how unthinkably lavish God's grace really is. And when we have that kind of vision, we just can't help but love. My prayer is that we we are tempted to fixate on our own sins or the sins of others, that we might be like this woman. Not secretly worrying whether we belong there, whether we're party crashers, or questioning why anyone else is on the guest list, but embarrassing in ourselves and how extravagantly we celebrate being drawn close to Jesus. In my prayer is that we couldn't help but want others to have what we've found.
the high woman sing, I want a house with a crowded table and a room by the fire for everyone. May we want that too, because I believe that's what Jesus wants. In a moment, our deacons will prepare to serve the Lord's Supper. As we come to the table together, hear this blessing. Come because, not because you must, but because you may. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Come not because any worthiness on your own gives you the right to come, but because you need help and mercy. Come because Jesus, you love Jesus a little and want to love him more. Come because Jesus has given his whole self to you. Come. All are welcome at this table because it's not West Main's table or my table. It's because it's Jesus' table. May it be so.